Oh, good morning, everyone. And we are going to be continuing our <clears throat> study on the book of First Peter. We've been doing that for several weeks. And we are on the last chapter of First Peter this week, so I expect that we are going to finish the, the book of First Peter um, this Sabbath. And then we will, I will not be here next weekend, and then I think we will do Second Peter. It's only three chapters, pretty short. So why don't we bow our heads for a word of prayer and let's get started with our lesson study today. Okay. <clears throat> let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for this Sabbath day. Bless us now as we study from your word in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay, we are in First Peter chapter 5, and we have covered the first four chapters, and just by way of brief review, First Peter chapter 1 talks about how God has chosen us, or he's, we are elect according to salvation, or, or to, through sanctification to salvation, showing the importance of sanctification in the salvation process. And we saw that the way we experience sanctification is through the trial of our faith. That's in verse 7 of chapter 1. And as we continue on, we see that um, at the end of the chapter, it talks about being born again of incorruptible seed and how that when you are of the flesh, you are like grass. Grass, when the sun comes and beats down on the grass, it withers and fades away. But when you are born again of incorruptible seed, when the trials of life come, you don't wither and fade away. And so that was chapter one. Chapter two then shows us the example of Christ in living through the trials of life and how Christ gives us an example to follow his steps. And the example given is the experience that Christ went through when he went through Gethsemane and the judgment and the cross and how that when he suffered, he didn't fight back. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. And he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. And the point of 1 Peter 2 is, you know, it's one thing when you mess up and you suffer for it. It's another thing when you do the right thing and you suffer for it and to take that patiently. And that's what is acceptable with God. And so that was the point of 1 Peter chapter 2. Jesus gives us an example. How do you respond when you are treated unfairly? Christ gives us the example. And when we went through that, I talked about how a lot of times when we mess up and we're rebuked for it, we fight back anyway because we want to maintain our pride, so to speak. And yet scripture is saying, well, you're supposed to take it patiently when you mess up, um, but what's acceptable with God is when you do the right thing and you suffer for it and you take it patiently, that is what ex is acceptable with God. And that is only by the grace of God that we can respond in such manner. And then in chapter three, we have some examples of how it is that we may, certain scenarios where we may suffer for doing the right thing. And one of the illustrations that Peter gives is a woman who, who is 
a Christian who is married to a man who is not and how she is mistreated constantly for doing the right thing. And the way to win her husband to the truth is to be like Christ, to have a meek and quiet spirit and to win him over by not fighting back, but by demonstrating the example of Christ. And then um, towards the end of the chapter, it says the other way that you can suffer for doing the right thing is when you are called to give an answer for your faith. And verse 15 of chapter 3 says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Now, some people like to give the reason for the hope that is within them in a very um, annoying manner. And that's not the way to win people to the truth. So we do so with meekness and fear. But the question is, what would you do if your life was on the line and you knew by giving the answer for what you believe with meekness and fear would put your life on the line, would you give that answer or would you try to slide out of it and be political? The example of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in Daniel 3 shows us how to answer in those circumstances. Whether or not God delivers us is up to him, but we're not going to crumble under pressure if we are following God through faith. And by the end of chapter 3, we see the promise about Jesus who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. So you may say, well, how is it possible that I can live a life here on this earth in which I will respond with the meekness of Christ? when I am being mistreated? Or how can I give an answer for my faith when my life is on the line? And the answer is, Jesus has gone into heaven on the right hand of God. Angels, authorities, and powers are made subject unto him. So there's nothing here on this earth that can counter the power of Christ who's on the right hand of God. He will be with you. He will help you. And then in 1 Peter chapter 4, it comes back to the idea of being like Christ. And 1 Peter 4, 1 says, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. So what this verse is telling us is that, look, Christ suffered for us in the flesh when he was here on this earth, and we are to have the same mind. And that reminds us of Philippians 2.5, which says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so, in the flesh, we may suffer, but we arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. We're going to battle, so we're arming ourselves with the mind of Christ. And the way we fight back, so to speak, <clears throat> is not with, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> with swords or, or spears or with cutting sharp words, but with the meekness of Christ. And that's, nobody can, can defeat that because that's with the power of God and God is all powerful. If you demonstrate the spirit of Christ and you arm yourselves with the mind of Christ when the battles come and the fight gets hot, so to speak, if you demonstrate the meekness and humility of Christ, if you have the mind of Christ, God will give you the victory in that situation. <clears throat> so that is how to face the trials of life. And, um, and then <clears throat> continuing through 
chapter 4, it says, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is the trial you rejoice in as much as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. So if you arm yourselves with the mind of Christ, you will experience trials because <clears throat> chapter one tells us it's those trials of our faith that purify us into that which is more precious than gold that is tried with fire. And so God has designs and plans for us to make us into something more precious than gold. And he does so by allowing us to pass through the trials. And by the time you get to the end of chapter four, it says, for the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And the point is, when judgment begins at the house of God, the question is going to be, how did the professed followers of Christ handle the trials of life? Did they arm themselves with the mind of Christ? Or were they like flesh or like grass who when the fiery trials came, they withered and faded away? If you arm yourselves with the mind of Christ, you will not wither and fade away. You will be more precious than gold tried in the fire. And when the judgment comes and it begins at the house of God, God will find you faithful because you've armed yourself with the mind of Christ. And of course, 1 Peter 4 once says, if you do that and you suffer in the flesh, you have ceased from sin. So that's what the judgment is going to be about. And whether you have armed yourself with the mind of Christ or whether you have not. So that brings us to chapter 5, which concludes the book of 1 Peter. <clears throat> and here Peter gives a final message in this epistle. And then he, of course, has 2 Peter, which is his last message to the believers. So here in chapter 5, he says, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Notice what Peter is saying here. <clears throat> he's writing to the believers, and he's saying, I'm, to those of you who are the elders, I exhort you, or I encourage you, because I'm also an elder. So Peter is addressing first the leaders of the church, and he says, look, I'm a leader in the church also, and I've witnessed the sufferings of Christ. I was an eyewitness to his sufferings. I saw him in Gethsemane, of course, he fell asleep during that time, but he did see Christ suffering at Gethsemane. He saw Christ go through the judgment and through the, the crucifixion. He was a witness of the sufferings of, of Christ, but he's also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. And you may ask what Peter is talking about there. There could be a number of things, but Peter was there when Moses and Elijah came down and Christ was transfigured and was seen in a glorified state. And so Peter saw Christ when he suffered. He also saw Christ when he was glorified when Moses and Elijah came down to the Mount of Transfiguration, which was a small representation of what it will be like when Jesus will come back the second time. So Peter saw both sides. 
And so this is his message to the leaders of the church. And this was written in 66 AD, just before the destruction of Jerusalem. And this is what Peter tells the leaders of the church. Verse 2, feed the flock of God which is among you. And there is a need today for the leaders of our church to feed the flock of God. And especially at the time in which we live, um, now is not the time for baby food. Now is the time for strong meat that will prepare God's people and the believers, the flock of God, to be ready for what is to come upon this world. And if you keep feeding a baby baby food for the rest of its life, it will not grow into the type of person, physically speaking, that it could be. It will be malnourished. And so many times we are spiritually malnourished. We stay with baby food that we received when we became spiritual babes in Christ and we never grew up into spiritual adulthood, so to speak. And there is a place for baby food, spiritually speaking. It's called when you are first in the faith. You're not going to hit someone with the hardest, hardest points when they're first coming to Christ. But if you leave them with baby food, they won't grow into the full stature of, of maturity that God would have them to grow into if you leave them with a baby food. They'll stay spiritual babies. So the message to the leaders of the church, Peter says, feed the flock of God which is among you. And then he says, <clears throat> taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. And, and this is sort of an obvious point, but he's saying, you know, <clears throat> to be a true leader, you're not... <clears throat> trying to take over leadership through force and so that you will be in a position of power so that people will follow your perspective or this or that. You're doing it with a willing mind so that you can feed the flock of God with the message of God, not so that you can get credit and have power and authority and run the show the way you want to do it, so to speak, so to speak. <clears throat> it's not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Verse 3, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And you know, <clears throat> this can be a problem sometimes in churches where <clears throat> the leaders of the church, they may not say it, but they may act it where they say, well, don't you know who I am? I'm the leader of this group. I'm the pastor of this church, and what I say is how it's done. That kind of thing. And what Peter is saying, no, you don't lord over God's heritage saying, I'm the one in authority, I'm the one in charge, because God is the one in authority. God is the one in charge. And what we are to do as leaders <coughs> is to be examples of being like Christ. And what, what is the example that Christ left for us in 1 Peter 2? It's when he suffered, he threatened not. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. But he committed himself to him that judges righteously. And I'll tell you, if you are in leadership, some of you may be in leadership now in the church. Some of you may not be. 
if you are in leadership, you are going to be criticized. You are going to be ridiculed and looked down upon and people are going to always say, you could have done it this way or you could have done it this way. And there's going to be times when you'll have made mistakes and hopefully you'll be humble enough to admit, yeah, I messed up. We should have done it like this. But there are going to be times when you do things the way God would have you to do it. God says this is the way we should worship, so this is how we worship. And people will say, well, we're not reaching the young people because of this. You're such a bad leader. Or you may say, well, this is the way, th th these are the messages that are important for our time. This is what has been outlined that we should be give, giving at this time. And people are going to say, you know what, those messages are too straight. We need to, we need to go back to light bread so that anybody and everyone will just want to come here. And yet, you are following what God has prescribed to be done in a humble manner. And the human tendency, when someone comes to you and says, you know, why are you guys doing it this way? You guys are messing it all up, is to fight back and say, well, don't you know I'm the leader? We're going to do it the way I say we do it. And Peter's saying, no, no, no. That is not how to be a leader. He says, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. So this is yet another demonstration of, of how we may suffer for well-doing. <clears throat> and what he's saying, be examples to the flock by being like Christ. And verse 4 says, and when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. And that's what I want, amen? A crown of glory that fades not away. It's interesting, at the beginning of the book, it talks about how the, the grass and the flower withers and fades away under the heat of the sun. But those who arm themselves with a mind of Christ, when the chief shepherd shall appear, that's the second coming of Christ, you shall receive a crown of glory that fades not away. Why? Because you were born again of incorruptible seed so that when the trials of life came, when the fiery trials came, you were purified into that which was more precious than gold. You did not wither and fade away under those trials. And so when Jesus comes, he'll give you a crown of glory that fades not away as well. And that is the promise to each one of us that when Christ comes, when he appears, we will receive a crown of glory that fades not away. And then he gives a few more illustrations here. He says, likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. So... Again, speaking in the context of leadership, he's, what he's saying is, if you're younger, submit yourselves to the elder. And what he means by that is, look, those who are older have gone through the battles and the trials, the fiery trials, and they have learned from these experiences how to follow the Lord. And those of you who haven't had as much experience as those of uh, of older years submit to their judgment and and learn from them how they have gone through those experiences now this clearly doesn't mean that if the the, the elders so to speak are telling you to go to, against the word of god to submit to them 
this is within the framework of being faithful to scripture. And if you come to a, a point that's not real clear, the, the younger should submit to the elder and work together to, to do the Lord's work. And he says, yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. And humility is certainly one of the, the issues or the attributes that is often lacking in the church. Um, you go to church board meetings and people come to these board meetings with agendas and no matter what happens, they're gonna proudly and tenaciously cling to that agenda no matter what. And there isn't this spirit of humility of like, well, what does God want us to do? but rather we are going to do my agenda at all costs. Even if it kills me, I'm going to fight for this with all I have. And scripture is saying no. Sounds like a whole lot of self. Yes. Scripture is saying be clothed with humility. We, we have too much of self in, in our churches. And the end of verse 5 says, For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. So those who are proud, those who say, Don't you know who I am? Boy, you should follow what I say because I know what I'm talking about. God resists that kind of an attitude. And in fact, Ellen White in Steps to Christ tells us that there's a lot of sins that are looked upon as very vile or very horrible, such as murder and adultery and drunkenness and that kind of thing. But one, the sin that is especially offensive to God is that of pride, because it is that attribute that is the most contrary to God's character. And it was that attribute that caused Lucifer to war against Christ and against God, and it caused Lucifer to be cast out of heaven. So we need to humble ourselves. We need to be clothed with humility because God resisteth the proud. And here's the thing. What happens if you get tested or you get tried, you get accused for doing something that you didn't do and you're still proud? What are you going to do? You're going to fight back, right? Because your pride is being crossed. And you're going to say, don't you know that I did the right thing? How dare you put me down? I was just standing up for the truth. The Bible says this. And then you fight back with a torrent of words with the spirit of the devil, not the spirit of Christ. And so that's why it's so important to become humble, to humble ourselves so that we can receive grace. It says, God giveth grace to the humble, and we are all in need of the grace of God. So continuing on in verse 6, it says, Humble your, there, yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Look, Jesus, in 1 Peter 2, it says, He, when he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. But he committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. And in Philippians 2, it says, Wherefore God hath highly exalted him, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And with us, if we remain humble, there will come a time where God will exalt us and give us a crown of glory that fades not away. Maybe in this life, everything will be, humanly speaking, unfair. But if you have God on your side, at the end, 
that won't matter because you will have eternal life and a crown of glory that fades not away. But if you have pride, you're going to fixate on how unfair this life is and you'll be bitter and angry and you won't have the grace of God to help you through the trials of life. So humble, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. So in due time, God will exalt us when we are humble, not for our glory, but for his. Verse 7 says, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. And that's, that's an amazing promise. But how, how often do we cast all of our care on God. That's, as you said, it's tough to do. It's like there's just certain things where it's like, well, God, God's not going to be able to fix this particular problem. I'm going to have to take it into my own hands and fix this one issue. He can have these other problems, but I've got to take care of this problem. I'll take it into my own hands. But scripture says, cast all your care upon God. He will take care of it. And you may think, humanly speaking, and other people may look at your situation and say, oh, what a horrible situation. They've been treated so unfairly. Why don't they fight back? Why, why aren't they putting those people in their place? Well, if we've learned to cast all of our care upon God, then we will find that he truly cares for us. And when we experience God's care for us, we won't want to have it any other way. We will want him to manage our cares, him to manage our troubles, him to manage our trials. So whatever fiery trials we may be going through, if we give it to God, he will help us to pass through it. Otherwise, we will wither and fade away. But if we cast all our cares upon God, he will care for us. He will take care of us and he will help us through whatever situation. So that's a wonderful promise. So whenever you're tempted to be discouraged, go to 1 Peter 5, verse 7, which says, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. And Peter would understand this because he is writing this near the end of his life. And by this point, he would have gone through 30 years of trials and persecutions for being a Christian. And so he could say with confidence, cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. Peter knows from personal experience that this is the case. And then notice the next thing that he says. He knows that you are going to go through the trials of your faith. He's encouraged us to cast all of our cares upon God. And then he has a warning for us, starting in verse 8. He says, be sober be vigilant because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour now what peter is saying is look you must always be steadfast and sober and always be on the lookout for the devil this roaring lion who's trying to devour you because if you for one moment lose your vigilance, if for one moment you take your eye off the ball, so to speak, the devil's going to swoop in and bring a trial to your life. And if your eyes are not upon Christ, 
the devil may destroy you through that experience. And so we must always be on the lookout so that when the trials do come, we recognize, oh yeah, the devil's just trying to discourage me. I'm going to cast my care upon God. The devil would try to come in, put trials into our life, whether it's a family situation or a work situation or whatever, so that we take our eyes off the Lord and we focus on what the devil is doing to us, and then we start fighting back the way the devil would want us to. And we're not being like Christ. We're not learning from the experience. And so the devil is looking for ways in whatever way he can to try to get us to stop being like Christ, to stop casting our cares upon him. And so scripture says, be sober, be vigilant. And this is interesting. What does it mean to be sober? means to be clear-minded, but one clear illustration of this is, in a human literal sense, don't get drunk with alcohol. Pretty straightforward. And the spiritual application is, don't drink the wine of Babylon. Because here's what happens when you drink the wine of Babylon. You get intoxicated with false doctrine, and you'll believe things like, well, it doesn't really matter what I do, God will still cover me with his righteousness even if I'm sinning anyway. And then when the trials of life come, you'll ha what happens is you'll say, well, it doesn't matter if I do this. I know it's not right, but I'm covered with his righteousness anyway. Now, this is not true, but I'm just saying this is false doctrine leading you to do this. And then you do what you shouldn't do, and then the devil swoops in and says, how could God ever save someone like you? You see what you just did? And then the trials come, and then you doubt God, and then you're down in the, in the gutter. So be sober. Don't get intoxicated with false doctrine that makes you think you can do whatever you want because when you start to live that way, then when you really mess up, the devil comes in and says, see, God could never save you. And if, if you're inclined to believe him at that point, then you're going to believe the devil and not believe in the Lord and you'll really be in, in trouble. So be sober, be vigilant, stay according to the truth of the word of God. Because your, your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Notice what verse 9 says. Whom resist steadfast in the faith. So how do we resist the devil? To be steadfast in the faith. So when the devil comes with his trials to try to discourage us, to try to get us to do something we shouldn't be doing or whatever. If we are steadfast in the faith of God, knowing what is right, and we remain steadfast to that, the devil can't touch us because God is on our side. Now, we may have an experience like Job where we have trials, but the devil won't be able to destroy us. That's what I mean by the devil can't touch us. He cannot take away our eternal life because we are steadfast in the faith and he's trying to destroy us to devour us and it's not just the first death so to speak sure he would like to destroy us and to kill us in a first death experience type of way but he's ultimately trying to devour and destroy us to keep us from having eternal life 
And so we resist him steadfast in the faith, and in that way he cannot destroy us or touch us. So it says, whom resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. So Peter's saying, look, you may be going through the trial of affliction, but resist the, de the devil steadfast in the faith of God, because that will allow you to pass through these afflictions. And by the way, you are not the only one who is going through this experience. Your brethren who are like-minded, who live in this world with you, are going through the same experience. So you're not alone. Cast your care upon God. He cares for you. He will help you to go through the afflictions and the trials of life. And if you think again about the immediate context of 1 Peter, it was written in the first century AD when to be a Christian, when to say, I believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, would be to put your life on the line. Now we can just say, yeah, I'm a Christian and we have religious freedom and we can just, you know, worship in freedom. But in the first century to say, yes, I believe. I believe Jesus is my Savior. I believe He died for me. I believe He gives me salvation and can give me a victorious life here on this earth. That would be putting your life on the line. And we have not yet faced that. We are tried in other ways, but there will come a time when to stand up for truth, to stand up for the faith of God in the last days will put our life on the line. And if we haven't learned how to trust in God now, through the trials of affliction that we pass through now, when the big league trials come, so to speak, when Jacob's time of trouble comes, so to speak, we won't know how to cast our cares upon God during that time. So it's very important. The message of 1 Peter is very important for us that we learn in the time of peace, so to speak, to cast our cares upon God through the trials of life because when the big trials come, we will have needed to have that experience of faith that has been sharpened and strengthened during those experiences so that we will be able to trust in God through the bigger trials of life. Continuing on in verse 10, but the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish strength, and settle ye. Now this is an interesting verse. It says, the God of grace, all grace, who hath called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after ye have suffered a while. So look, if you are going to have eternal life, it is guaranteed that you're going to suffer for a while. Because Christ, who is our example, also suffered. And those who follow in his steps will also suffer. But when we learn to cast our care upon him, we will be able to pass through those experiences of suffering just as Christ did. And we will receive his eternal glory. And it says, after we have suffered a while, what, what's, what, what is the um, process of suffering or what, what does it help us to become? It helps us to be, it makes us perfect, established and strengthened and settled. And this is interesting. So we're described as being perfect, established, strengthened and settled. If you remember what Ellen White says about the seal of God, she says it is a settling into the truth, both intellectually and spiritually, so that you cannot be moved. 
So when the trials of life come, maybe the, the most awful things happen. Maybe a spouse dies in a car accident. Maybe someone runs off with someone else. You name it. Whatever it is, and God forbid that that should happen to any of us, but whatever it is, we've been so settled into the truth intellectually so we know it, and spiritually we have the experience. We cannot be moved by, by whatever happens, by whatever trial comes. And so after we have suffered a while, we've been made perfect, established, strengthened, and settled, and that is a description of someone who has been sealed. When the trials of life come, no matter what happens, you don't move. And those are the people that will receive eternal glory through Christ Jesus. And God is looking for a people during this time who instead of being like the children of Israel, who when every trial came, they murmured and complained and said, did God lead us out here to die in the wilderness? And people today when trials come, does God really exist? How could a God allow this to happen to me in my life today? It's the same thing. God is looking for people who, when whatever trial comes, say, I know whom I have believed. I'm going to cast my care upon God. It's not easy. This is really hard. It's really sad. It's really tough. But I'm going to trust in God. He's going to help me through this experience. And Peter, if you read this book, he's not saying it's going to be easy. Suffering wouldn't be suffering if it wasn't suffering. Peter is not saying that suffering is pleasant. He just says that when you suffer, rejoice and be exceeding glad that you can be partakers of Christ's suffering. So as we continue on, so again, verse 10, but the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle ye. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So this is where the message of 1 Peter ends. He says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And we will be partakers of that glory and dominion when Christ comes back the second time. And that is the promise that we can look forward to. And then as Peter finishes here, this is interesting, verses 12 through 14, he says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose, I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. So if you want to know what the true grace of God is, study First Peter. And notice verse 13, he says, The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus my son. The church at Babylon. This was written in 66 AD, shortly before Peter died. Do you know where Peter died? Where was Peter crucified? He was crucified upside down. Do you know where that took place? It's in the city of Rome. So why is Peter saying that he is at Babylon? 66 AD, Babylon had passed off the scene centuries before. We're talking about 400 years earlier, Babylon had passed off the scene. Babylon was no longer in existence. Why is Peter saying the church that is at Babylon elected together with you salutes you? Peter knew under the prophetic eye that where he was in Rome would become Babylon in the end of time. So he is identifying Rome as Babylon in his epistle. It's kind of interesting, but that helps you to understand when it talks about Babylon and the end of time, it's talking about Rome, spiritual Rome. 
which is in existence today. The church that is at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus my son. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. So we've seen the message of 1 Peter, and in a nutshell, the message of 1 Peter is, Christ suffered for us in the flesh. Arm yourselves likewise with the same mind so that you will become strengthened, established, settled, so that you cannot be moved, and that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of glory that fades not away. So may we have that experience in this day. That is my prayer. Thank you, everyone.